Hello and welcome to the Particular Good Podcast. I'm Charles Hughes-Huff. I'm here with Danny Drain and Heather Hughes-Huff. And we are here today to talk about a fellow by the name of J.F. Powers. J.F. Powers is a, or was, a fiction writer, a novelist and short story writer, who once was well-known in American literature. In 1963, he won the National Book Award for his novel, Mort de Urban, and he beat out Nabokov. Uh, Nabokov was pale fire for that award in that year. He wrote about American Catholics primarily, lots of stories and novels about priests, and he was not a priest, but was a devout Catholic from birth. His family was a devout Catholic family, and he was uh, in some ways a traditionalist in Catholicism, and at that point also in some ways a, a, a strong proponent of social justice uh, of his time. He was a conscientious objector to World War II. He went to prison for it. Uh, he was involved with the Catholic worker movement and a big fan of Dorothy Day and so forth, and also a critic of certain elements of modernism of the church. So his politics were strong, but didn't, don't exactly line up with what we think of as church politics today. He writes beautifully. Um, he was admired by other 20th century Catholic writers like Evelyn Waugh, Flannery O'Connor, Walker Percy. They all loved his stories. And, um, and like I said, he used to be quite well known. I'd say he's not well known anymore. Um, the New York Review of Books put out his novels and short stories, thankfully, so you can find them. And uh, the, the great collection, the stories of J.F. Powers, is what we're looking at today. We're looking at two stories written by this fellow. The first we'll talk about is called The Forks, and the second is Look How the Fish Live. All right, so Danny, what did you make of uh, The Forks? Let's start with that. Well, let me take a, a moment to ceremoniously dump on James Wood again. Who? <laughs> oh, yeah. When I had to Google J.F. <laughs> Powers, <laughs> one of the, I think the second hit was, was the obituary they wrote for him, which was J.F. Powers, dead at 81, wrote about priests. <laughs> <laughs> and the obituary itself isn't super flattering. And there have been Surreal. essays written now uh, against against Woods and uh, against James Wood. And uh, and one of the points made in an article written in response to that, in appreciation of Powers, was that would they have said Melville dead wrote about whales? <laughs> so there's an awful lot going on here. Of course, he does write about priests, and and in some sense, you know, the ecclesial commentary. Uh, it's not that it's not subtle. It's just it's it's uh, it's subtle and beautiful, but uh, it's also just really clear what he means when he's when he's being subtle about about Monsignor in the Forks. I, I mean, the the basic stage setting here is that uh, we just get a, a slice of life of, of really one afternoon with a, a, an assistant pastor or parochial vicar, a young guy who um, actually seems to care about the evangelical councils and just helps people when he encounters people who need help, who lives in the shadow and, and very much in the domain and under the regency of Monsignor, or he, as he's often referred to in this story, who um, I'm sad to say uh, resembles uh, Monsignor as I've known, um, who need to remain nameless, but <laughs> nevertheless, this, this archetype um, it's not just a caricature. <laughs> and uh, I had to stop reading at a few points because I, I was like, oh, just change a couple of the details there. And I, I know this story. <laughs> so um, I loved I loved the forks in particular because, uh, yeah, I mean, I think I, the way I sketched it is, is, is probably a fairly honest one. You have a priest, uh, the younger priest, who uh, Father Udex, who um, really just wants to be a good priest. Um, is happy to help the janitor suddenly dig up uh, the yard for Monsignor's new, beautifully, finely architectural, uh, <laughs> uh, sketched architectural thing for a, a backyard garden with a fountain and, and so on. And he, uh, Father Udex is happy to just like take his shirt off and start digging too. Um, there's this whole dynamic with the car, uh, Monsignor's car, which is, you know, the best in the neighborhood and traffic stops for him. And it's, it's all... Uh, I mean, it's hysterically damning, actually, yeah, yeah. for how shallow Monsignor uh, is. It's all about it's all about optics. You know, yeah. we can't appear a certain way to the Catholics. We certainly can't appear a certain way to the Presbyterians. 
And part of that uh, keeping up appearances is that uh, in Monsignor's mind, it's inappropriate for Father Udex to be seen exerting himself at all, mm-hmm. appearing anything other a. than right, <laughs> <laughs> driving a Model A. Less than the best. Yeah. Yeah, please, uh, please jump in. I, I, um, it, it did seem to me the basic dynamic was like trying to live the evangelical councils or just like trying to jump up in the corporation to get up the corporate ladder to be a bishop. That's yes. Monsignor's goal. Yeah, he's like past his, his prime, past his opportunity to become a bishop and feels passed over and that comes into some of his feelings about his status and place and maybe why these things are so important to him. Um, but no, that was a great summary. <laughs> um, something that I think, like this story feels the, the least subtle that I've read of his, of um, these dynamics within like the, like you said, like the corporate church, the corporation, church as corporation elements. Um, but it's still very real, which I, I love that 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 was your takeaway because me you know, I when I read this I was like oh it's kind of on the nose for some of the points that he makes in other stories that's kind of why we added the look how the fish live to show a different different side different form um, but I think that's why maybe he is less popular than he should be because we're not familiar with clerical life <laughs> like <laughs> broad American culture especially like you know monsignors i don't i've never met a monsignor i don't think at least in a way that i would be able to pick up on well what this this is what actually struck like. me about it yeah i think you're right heather this is what struck me about it I, you kind of only see this from from uh being so not just around a parish but like bumping elbows with people in the moments when they're not trying to present their public face to you like this right. is that this is the the perspective of someone who like works in the office and like has seen Monsignor in a bad mood or like hears what people say right after he leaves the room and you've been forced to smile for a while like this is that dynamic it's priests at home yes um the domestic life of priests is is what yeah he's known known for portraying but I think a, another part of that is also that so much of what he wrote was uh pre-Vatican II and now mm. we have this totally different um social dynamic in the church that some of this stuff, all of it always is going to track because it's about people and it's sort of beautifully, incredibly done, but all of the politics are really different than they were. Um, so I think it's hard for people to to know what to do with him. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. But the, uh, the, the, the things he sets up, you know, the, the concern with the being urbane, um, which is like a, a theme of his, you know, mm-hmm. the the priest or the bishop who uh, manages to have worldly success uh, with all of its trappings, with all its small vices, um, contrasted with the, the, the priest who has virtue, who's like from a farm, doesn't know how to use his forks, which is the name of the title, <laughs> doesn't properly know how to, or doesn't know how to use all the different uh, silverware that the Monsignor insists upon at their one-on-one dinners, <laughs> right. which then the Monsignor turns into an opportunity to lecture him about his manners, suggest he might go off to the Sulpicians for seminary for a year, but really just to make him more sophisticated. <laughs> to spit shine him. <laughs> spit shine him, yeah. And uh, Monsignor is chummy with the head of the bank. Uh, there's a, a really weird and wonderful scene where a woman comes and he thinks and asks for uh, advice or uh, spiritual advice. And Father Udex thinks that she's going to make confession or something. And she's like, oh, no. We're asked for money. That's what he thinks next. Okay, well, what, what can I do to help her? And then uh, she really just has come into a large inheritance, and she wants uh, advice about how to, what to do with this inheritance. And he suggests she give some of it to the poor, which sort of shocks her. And then he realizes that she's looking for the Monsignor who can help her give advice as to how to properly invest it in order to make more money, right? And meanwhile, Father Udex has just received a check from uh, the factory where all the strikes are happening, and they send uh, proceeds, like their charity donations, directly to priests, uh, both to him and to Monsignor, who gets a uh, premier rate. And he's deciding what to do with it, right? This Mm -hmm. is the kind of crux. Um, Should he give it 
he tells in a moment of rebellion at the dinner after being lectured about the forks. <laughs> we have this little confrontation between Father Eudix and Monsignor where he says, I'm thinking of cashing it over to the strikers, right? Uh, and we learn that Monsignor has, dis has not trusted him since he saw him reading the Catholic Worker <laughs> magazine. And uh, so he's going to sign his check over to the strikers, this, this act of defiance that just gives the money to the people who are causing the trouble to the very factory owners who are mailing him the check. Uh, and this um, brings up a theme because he doesn't do that, right? And he doesn't, he just feels like it's hush money, so he can't even do anything with it. And so what, he, he tears up in little pieces and flushes it down the toilet. After this interaction with the, yeah. the grieving widow who wants to know how to invest. Yeah. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't the widow leave saying, like, they told me you were strange? Yeah, yeah, like yeah. <laughs> In I'll response to him saying, what if he gave it to the poor? <laughs> she she's like, you're not a good priest. You're not a good priest, yeah. I'll come back later and I can see the Monsignor to help me get ahead financially. So the I think the, a theme that you find in powers is the powerlessness of the virtuous person. Mm -hmm. yeah. There's not like this virtue that is gonna triumph in his stories. Um, yeah. It's it's gonna be that you tear up the check and flush it down the toilet. I, but I love this tension because it's not, like when he does that, he doesn't think he's doing the right thing. He imagines all of the good things that other people did with their checks. Like they gave it, they helped their parent in a nursing home. They gave it to the poor. They did something good. They bought new uniforms for the local sports team of kids or whatever. Um, so I think what's so great about Powers and what he brings from his own life so much is yeah, like everything you just said completely, like the virtuous person doesn't win, <laughs> um, which I think is a, like a good message for today, kind of, um, in, I mean, in how it can be motivating, not just depressing, but also that he's left with this question of how do we live? That's his constant question in these scenarios for clerics, for lay people, um, we have this structure of the church that is sort of infiltrated with American capitalism, um, but at the same time is our vehicle of grace, that the only one that we have, um, and and also brings grace with it, even, even in these terrible, <laughs> shallow, worldly people. Monsignor, at this moment when Father Eudix declares what, that he's gonna like support the strikers, he says so calmly. Years in the confessional had prepared him for anything. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> there's, there's still good that comes out of, of the structures of the church, um, but at the same time, they don't always answer this question of like, what do we do? How do we live in this world? Um, and I think that that was a live question for Powers throughout his life, who also lived in these kinds of tensions because he got married young, had a bunch of kids, and all he wanted was to be an artist. Like he clearly had a vocation to write and felt very passionately about his work. Um, but then he made stupid decisions. Like he wouldn't take teaching posts at universities because he just wanted to be able to write. Um, his family went through these horrible hard times because he like wouldn't make money. Hmm. Um, and that he was never at home in the world. Um, and I think that he sort of lived that this double vision of, of wanting, um, you know, a wealthy benefactor to sort of support his art, but then realizing at the same time what that would be. Yeah, and I do think that I, 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 there's a strong ambivalence to the ending, like you've, like you've pointed out. Uh, he, I think, I don't know if the, he knows he's done the right thing, but I think he did the only thing he could do. Right. Because yeah. he did view it as hush money. Like, and so even buying uniforms to the church's orphans would be, um, that's, that's a confusing uh, combination of the baseball <laughs> thing and the <laughs> orphans thing. But anyway, um, <laughs> I'm picturing a baseball team of orphans suddenly. Uh, but anyway, even buying something for the poor would have been to use hush money, which he felt like, would be to accept the terms of the owners um, against the strikers. So he's 
doing something ethical by tearing up the check. Yeah. But then he's, you're, then he says, he could hear the others already giving an account of their stewardship, but could not judge them. And what's interesting there is like, okay, he, he's not going to judge other people for taking the money. And then he listens to the, the reasons. I bought baseball uniforms for the school. I bought the nuns a new washing machine, et cetera. And then the, it ends with the question, and you, Father? Yeah. And so now we're, he's feeling the potential of being judged himself, interrogated himself. Yeah. Right? Um, and so there is this ambiguity and, and, and I think like a, a f- slight despair, right? Yeah. That um, he's, I don't think regrets what he did. He did the only thing he could do, but also not only can't judge other people for not doing it, but feels like he can't even give an, a, a, an account in some way. Um, um, so I found that very poignant. Yeah, you're sort of trapped. Could I read a bit? Because yeah. I, um, I, think, I think what you've just said about the ending is, is profound and true and certainly what Powers was doing with the story. But I'm reading it now. I'm reading this story now in the context of having just taught a whole course on the Second Vatican Council. Yeah, and so yeah. seeing Powers as sort of critical of the, the clerical ecclesial attitude at the time is like so interesting. And I want to I first read uh, probably my favorite sequence, but then just talk a little bit about one of the points he makes. Um, uh, yeah, let me, just, let me just start. Monsignor was a master at making points. Nothing <laughs> had changed since the day Father Udex walked into the rectory saying he was the new assistant. Monsignor had evaded Father Udex's hand in greeting, and a few days later, after he began to get the range, he delivered a lecture on the whole subject of handshaking. It was Middle West to shake hands, or Southwest, or West in any case, and it was not done where he came from, and why had he ever come from where he came from? Not to be reduced to shaking hands, you could bet. Handshaking was worse than foot washing, and unlike that pious practice, there was nothing to support it. And from handshaking, Monsignor might go into a general discussion of Father Udex's failings. He used the open forum method, but he was the only speaker, and there was never time enough for questions from the audience. Monsignor sees his examples at random from life. He saw Father Udex coming out of his bedroom in pajama bottoms only, and so told him about the dressing gown, its purpose, something of its history. He advised Father Udex to barber his armpits, for it was being done all over now. He let Father Udex see his bottle of cologne, steeple special for clergymen, and said he should not be afraid of it. He suggested that Father Udex shave his face oftener, too. He loaned him his Rogers Pete catalog, which had sketches of clerical blades togged out in the latest, and prayed that he would stop going around looking like a rabbinical student. Just to pause there for a second, the fact that that Monsignor is allowing himself to be to receive advertisements about blades just for clerics. It's like so <laughs> funny. It's incredible. <laughs> like hand soap for men versus for women. It's yeah. so great. <laughs> He found Father Udex reading The Catholic Worker one day and had not trusted him since. Father Udex's conception of the priesthood was evangelical in the worst sense, barbaric, gross, foreign to the mind of the church, which was one of two terms he used as sticks to beat him with. The other was taste. The air of the rectory was often heavy with the mind of the church and taste. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so first of all, that's funny. It's it's piercing. It's, it's obviously like uh, powers definitely saw some things in his, in his oh, daily yeah. devotion. And the, and the slight um, anti-Semitism that sort of drops yes. in there casually is yes. like perfect for this moment too. And the, yeah. the utterly you know, non-ecumenical attitude that must be there too. If yeah. you, don't you dare resemble Protestants in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> yeah. But um, uh, what's particularly, and I think I want to use this strong terminology, what's particularly diabolical about this is that when you have a, a fellow who's as shallow as the Monsignor like this, who is the voice of conscience, faith, and reason for a whole community of people in a town who can beat everyone with the stick of, quote, the mind of the church and taste. Mm-hmm. What does it do? It generates uh, in folks with whom there is a little bit of virtue, the impossibility of like acting within that structure other than by way of like rebellion or, or just cutting up the strike check because the whole game is like loaded against authentic virtuous action. And I think, um, Anyway, just to, just to add that that element of I guess dramatic depth there to Father Udex's action at the end, that like, um, if the church is what Monsignor says it is, then all I can do is cut up this strike check because mm-hmm. uh, if I give 
you know, if I buy a new washing machine for the nuns, well, maybe I bought it from the Presbyterian washing machine sellers, and that's going to be a mistake, too. Or, <laughs> or maybe the nuns are too dirty, and they read the Catholic worker. And, like, you know, it could be a whole... The only thing I can do is, like, uh, actually entrust my fate to the one who does judge, finally. Um, and I, I think it's actually... Uh, it's an endorsement of the character, an endorsement of the character of Father Udex that his final question is... Uh, the question of his own sort of fate. Mm -hmm. I, I do think it is, it is, um, uh, it's a scary moment for him. He, he's not sure of his fate, but I think that's actually like the healthiest ecclesial perspective is for, for the priest to like, I, I think I've done well here, but I'll, I'll let the Lord decide. Versus Monsignor, who can hold his hand up, not in a blessing, but in a wave, which is, quote, better than a blessing. <laughs> traffic stops for him and, and all of that. Um, so you have, you know, capital letters, the mind of the church and taste versus, like, a guy who's actually willing to, like, dig and not pay into the, the strike monopoly kind of thing that's happening. Yeah. And, yeah, who chooses sort of function over appearances like there's that conversation about the car so father udex wants to get a car um not like the monsignors <laughs> which is a, a beautiful machine um but very functionally he wants it so that he can go visit the sick right and not be stuck on the bus all the time and father udex thinks this is a great idea until he finds out it's a classless uh ford <laughs> model a and then it's like no you can't do that because it, it will look bad, and it's like, no, I want it so I can get somewhere. <laughs> it's not about um, how it appears. Yeah. Well, and Father Udex says, because anytime Monsignor pulls out in the car, which in the instance that we see him drive away is just for a drive, when Monsignor pulls out for a drive, the traffic cop stops traffic because they assume anytime Monsignor's driving, he's going on sick calls, and he's not. Yeah. Whereas Father Udex is actually like, it'd probably be good if it didn't take me two hours on the bus to do these sick calls. <laughs> right. <laughs> right there before the, before the time for the last rites. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He's not permitted. He is so good, even though this is not, it's not at all subtle. He's so, in this particular story, uh, he's so good at portraying this interweaving of a certain kind of Catholic piety and ideology which he typifies here as the mind of the church and interweaving that with a, a deep worldliness yeah. you know, that, mm -hmm. and bringing those two together and showing how like for how often when someone is saying we've got to do the worldliness for the sake of the mind of the churchliness to you know, avoid the, scandal, the, the Catholic orthodoxy, right. the piety Actually, it's it's at all as in most cases of utilitarian thinking, um, the the relationship is actually inverse. The the piety actually supports the worldliness rather than the worldliness supporting the piety. Yeah. And and in our day, this is still of course a reality for not only um, priests but for professors at uh, schools of theology and ministry. And <laughs> this could be a temptation for anyone, but uh, but but. Uh, I think of it in grosser terms now, in terms of marketing and mm -hmm. uh, pushing um, a sort of slick ad campaign or, or, or putting out content over and over and over, podcasts every two weeks, for instance, <laughs> um, that, um, that you, where you just like, you've got the audience, the audience is growing, the numbers are growing, the, the clicks are happening, so you've got to keep up with the brand mm -hmm. and the... At first, you think that you're you're hitting the brand in order to to spread the gospel, if you will, but oftentimes the gospel becomes just the means to the brand, or the, which we saw happen in extreme ways in the '90s and 2000s for evangelical Christianity, yeah. and I think is also a temptation at the moment for Catholic um, piety. Yeah, totally. Yeah, completely. And, and, and of course, he even has, J.F. Uh, Powers has particularly arch words from his time yeah. for the venerable uh, Fulton, Fulton Sheen, Sheen. Yeah. <laughs> who is, uh, you know, a major part of our school's history hmm. and who I, I like very much. But uh, he, he took a dim view of the use of the television. Um, and you can see where he's coming from on that. Um, I don't know that um, Bishop Sheen was... Uh, a worldly man like Monsignor, I'm not at all suggesting that, but but, 
But Powers was concerned about even that trend, which has come full flower today. Yeah. In fact, I think we can have faith that Sheen was not a worldly man like Monsignor, because Udex's uh, characterization of Monsignor is someone who would never make a mistake. There's uh, no yeah. problems for him, and, and the story goes, as it's often the case with, with, with saintly bishops, uh, they tend to not be so good at the administrative stuff, and that's, <laughs> right, right, that's right. what I've heard of Sheen. So yeah, that's because enough, he yeah. may not have been good at the administration, I have faith that he was yeah, not. He, he was <laughs> yeah. I make no comment. There, yeah. that fact, I just, in Morte Urban, he, he, the, the character loves Fulton Sheen, mm-hmm. which is sort of a send-up of, uh, of, of Sheen at that moment. Yeah. But, um, you know, that's, that's, that's just powers right in the Midwest, you know. Yeah, well, and also the, the characters, like what, what is valued about Sheen is... Is his famousness? Is yeah. His right, right. Um, so, in any case, uh, I'll pay myself in the corner here. But um, <laughs> no, yeah. I think this is an excellent point, and it's it's not just for famous people with an audience or however many yeah. Instagram followers. It's like the way that we think about right. ourselves as brands today, um, and the way that our faith plays into that um, is ever everywhere apparent in his work despite it being such a different context mm-hmm. um and yeah i think mort durbin i highly recommend have you read that i've not i've not gotta read it it's so good i will i will now i powers as a reader of the ecclesial culture before the council is like so interesting it's, it's to amazing me now. historically yeah. but and then that book is devastating you mm-hmm. read it and it's kind of slow burn mm-hmm. you know it's a slow burn but then at the by the end you're just you're just weeping it's amazing there's these moments I don't want to give too much away, but it's it's about a worldly priest who became a priest because he met this very like uh, compelling, charismatic guy, and he's like, oh, he pictures himself in in a sports car. You know, he borrows sports car from parishioners and stuff like that. <laughs> he's like, you know, very much up and coming. wants wants to be that kind of guy, um, and then throughout the course of the novel, is sort of laid low by the world hmm. in these very specific ways in like hilarious, incredible, subtle ways. Like he's a part of building, sorry, this is not about Mort Urban, but I just have to say it. Yeah, no, no, go for it. Um, he's involved with this with this uh, retreat center that builds a golf course <laughs> um, <laughs> to get like the right kind of people to come to the retreats. Um, and in this in this incredible moment, he's on the golf course and he's hit in the head by a golf ball, and it's sort of like a symbol of the world. Oh yeah, um, crushing him, and and he's a better for it. He's a better for like being laid low. And these and there's more than one moment like that where it's like everything's sort of working together in this really subtle, hmm. symbolic but like very funny way. Um, he's just an incredible writer. You could tell it took him like a million years to write all of his stories and and his novels especially he didn't he doesn't have that that big um of a corpus yeah of a corpus so he you can really read all of it but anyway yeah well, like i said change a few details and i know that guy <laughs> yeah that's how i felt about look how the fish live too yeah, so let's move to that that's a great transition um look how the fish live features no priests so uh, take that james wood and, um, <laughs> But features a father, basically. J.F. Powers wrote about birds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a father dealing with nature in his backyard. Um, this seems like a more personal tale from the work of J.F. Powers, of, who often wrote at home and had a ton of kids. And so... Um, <laughs> Never enough money. So, yeah. Uh, Danny, tell us about this story. <laughs> uh, the scene is that uh, it's it's now springtime, which for this father means death and mosquitoes. Um, basically, what happens is that as nature uh, takes its course in his backyard, which is often um, disastrous, nature failing all over the place, um, doves not caring about their chicks, weasels killing rabbits, cats killing birds, that kind of thing. Um, it's sort of a zoomed-in look at the little dramas that happen when when children encounter death and the duty of a father to um, to actually be really sort of open and pliable, uh, at least internally, um, both to shepherd his kids through those moments of like, uh, yeah, you've encountered something beautiful in nature, but what you're not seeing is that uh, doves are terrible. 
or terrible <laughs> parents. This bird, which is cute in which you've given water, sure, and bread, sure, will die within the day. Uh, and I will have to both console you and bury the damn thing for the 10th time this season. And it kills me every time that a little death like this happens. And it's this, it's this interior look at the father who, um, I don't know, you get the sense that he like dies every time that he has to do this. Whether he's, he's open about that in front of his children, I, don't, I, don't, I think it's pretty clear he actually tries to hide his emotions, but it, mm-hmm. it really wounds him that this death happens and he's the sort of, stu- he's got dominion over this little kingdom in his backyard and he's kind of the, the, the priest and the, and the undertaker. Uh, and there's something, there's something beautiful and profound about that. And, and part of what I loved about the story was um, it's, it's, it's not a critique of nature. It's just, it's just a, an open-eyed view at like doves are terrible parents and cats tend to kill birds <laughs> and uh, mosquitoes are a menace and I've had to poison my yard and it seems to be working, but like maybe it's also messing up the other stuff. I don't know. And the kids don't even notice any of this. Yeah, well, I, that's, that's what he, that's uh, what I love about the, the mood of this story is like, is to the the lack of self confidence that this man has, mm-hmm. like uh, th- that I completely identify with. By the way, when it comes to like owning a home and dealing with a yard, <laughs> it's like, well, here everything is. What should I do? Have I did I kill the bird with my poison? I don't know. <laughs> um, can I? You know, I'm gonna ask the kid if the bird drank and make a motion with my head to see if, and then. Then he acknowledges later that he has no idea what motion birds would normally <laughs> make when drinking. Right. And uh, he's f- frustrated by his children's complete self-confidence of what they've seen. And then their lack of being able to uh, explain what they've seen. And at one point he says he decided to wait a few years. <laughs> she didn't appear to realize that she was cornered, that having seen the attacker, she should be able to describe it. But she was under no obligation to be logical. He decided to wait a few years. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. So he's in like this like contentious relationship with everything, is never sure he's doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And feels put upon and frustrated and wants to do the right thing but n- doesn't know exactly what it is. And and it's this beautiful drama of birds and cats and weasels and bunnies and uh, doves that don't, you know, that build cr- bad nests that killed her young and <laughs> Uh, and the children and him and the mother who retreats upstairs and says, ask your father. <laughs> and <laughs> he, he retreating into the office to t- hope the situation just gets better on its own to come out and find that it, <laughs> it hasn't. And the, the, the sort of the um, both the complete confidence of his children and their um, their lack of interest after they've created a situation. They found the damn bird, <laughs> and now he's done what he can to sort of make a little nest under the shade for it, and then he comes back out and finds that they haven't even looked to see whether the bird's doing okay now. They're over it, yeah. And so he's outraged at them and wants to teach them various lessons, and they don't even follow him to see what he's doing, you know, and it's just on him. <laughs> the, the lonely, anxious responsibility of being an adult surrounded by children <laughs> dealing with wild animals in your yard, yes. But I love the the way that the house, so they're living in this old house um, that's like clearly like the yard, he doesn't know what to do with it. Um, and there's this sense of like, nature is out here doing a bad job. Yeah. <laughs> Things are not going well. And then you look at sort of like, civilization it's like things are not going well mm-hmm. <laughs> things are not working out in his relationships with his family and his just functioning as an adult human man to to maintain his home and yard he is not up to the task yes well in that superstructure of the the local college planning to buy out his house, his neighbors. Which comes construct at the, the end, yeah. It's like a superstructure laid on at the end, but actually I think, Heather, you helped me see it's part of that larger... I mean, if, if this is a question of, like, if it's a theological question of theodicy or, like, God's governance over creation, which I think maybe it kind of is that. At least there's a, a not subtle passage about, like, it is all a God question, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I couldn't make sense of the title, of this short story, look how the fish live until now. I think in some sense, not that Powers is being cynical, but that like, okay, uh, little end nature in the father's backyard um, kind of sucks on its own. And, and then 
bigger end nature, this guy's family and this neighborhood and this college culture also kind of sucks on its own. The college is going to overtake even this beautiful little drama that, yeah. that happens in this backyard. And those college students, the father is so familiar with their bad habits, he knows what their favorite brand of beer is because they keep tossing the, the beer cans into his bushes. And the, the elderly neighbors next door. Yeah. All, the, all this vibrant death, moss, soil, yeah. uh, animals eating each other. It's all just going to be a parking lot. Yep. Everybody's bad parents like the doves or something like that. Is that, I mean, well, yeah, what is the meaning of look how the fish live? Is that? Well, I want to, yeah. So when he, he, he says this, he hears this from the neighbor, the Hans. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, um. Scott Hahn and his wife are his neighbors. Uh, and he's talking with them. Just to be clear, that's not the reference. This is pre-Scott Hahn. No, this is, yes, sorry. He is talking with his neighbors, and they have the similar kind of self-confidence that his children do that he lacks. Uh, but he is sort of stubborn with them on certain points. Like, uh, he feels that the, Mr. Hahn is the kind of person who loves to get excited about the fact of the atomic bomb, but does not want to talk about the fallout. A uh, little right. passing comment. And then they have this debate about how mosquitoes breed. <laughs> the Hans feel like there aren't really mosquitoes in the neighborhood. They all come from the swamps. If they would just go down there and poison the swamps, it would be fine. <laughs> and um, he feels like, no, he's got to, he poisoned the ones in his yard because there's enough water there for them to breed. I, don't, I was trying to f- sort through that conversation, but there seems to be like a, um, again, a, as you see with his conflict with his children, he has a certain idea that he's by no means sure of mm-hmm. uh, that is being contradicted, and then they get into a debate that can't be resolved. <laughs> right. And then um, he just goes around feeling unsure, but not sure about what they're saying either. Pretty sure they're wrong. There's <laughs> Mrs. Hunt said, anyway, they're here now. They're here now. We can <laughs> agree on that. <laughs> he received this not as a compliment, but as a polite denial of his theory. <laughs> right. Like so much tension. And, and he's telling them he's done with it all. He's done with the birds. He's done with the rabbits. He's done with children. He's done with men and women and everything else of that, all, that just like cry out to God from the earth and to him and leave him with the anxiety responsibility. And then um, in response to Mr. Han says, look how the fish live, which reminded me of like um, Jesus, lo- consider the, the birds of the air, yeah. uh, the birds of the field. Um, and I, I don't know what he's quite what he's doing there. So I'm open to interpretations, but he goes from that into this little theodicy of like, hey, um, we're supposed to consider the bird of the air that God cares for each one that falls, right? But, um, and look how the fish live. Uh, he looked at the man with interest. This was the most remarkable thing Mr. Han had ever said in his presence, but he didn't uh, appreciate the implications. He didn't see himself in the picture at all. I love that. Mr. Han didn't see himself in the picture at all. Mm-hmm. This is the difference between the self-confident man and, the, and, and Mark, who is um, not, who does see himself in the picture and, and that leaves him feeling unsure. But then we got um, compassion for the holy f- family fleeing from Herod was laudable and meritorious, but it was wasted on soulless rabbits fleeing from soulless weasels. Nevertheless, it was there just the same or something very like it. As he'd said in the beginning, he was sick of it all. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot going on there. Uh, look how the fish live is the very problem. Right. He can see himself in the picture, and then that gives this question to, like, how is it that I'm supposed to live? And with respect to the fish, how is it that I'm supposed to handle this world all around me? How is it that I'm supposed to respond or give account or be Mm. outraged or whatever? Well, I love this line that he'd like to put a few questions to God. God, though, knowing his thoughts, knew his questions. And the world was already in possession of all the answers that would be forthcoming from God. Yeah. <laughs> that's like, that's what look how the fish live means. Yes. It's like. It's, it's a man of tremendous faith, actually. I mean, he, yeah. he, he sees that the question is what is dominion, what is participation, because that's the question of my life. Whereas uh-huh. Han 
can like state the question just abstractly or say like, well, the mosquitoes are in the swamp. This problem is not in your backyard. <laughs> We're continuing on. Just Heather and me, um, our listening audience, Daniel Drain had to, to leave uh, to go to another meeting. So we're going to miss his insights on the final portion of the story, sadly. But um, here we have, um, after this theodicy, we've got like a, um, a man had to accept his God-given limitations, is what he says in the end. Mm. A man couldn't commiserate with his life to the full extent of his instincts and opportunities. A man had to accept his God-given limitations. What's interesting to me about that is that then they have this, uh, this uh, conversation at the very last where it's revealed that all of this that we've been talking about is about to become moot because it's about to become concrete. Right. And um, the Huns are explaining to a woman who's on the street that uh, the house is going to be gone soon and um, it's going to be a new dormitory and a parking lot. Um, he, doesn't, he can't match his own friend's commiseration with him about his own house and everything we've been dealing with, which is interesting. Yeah. Though he appreciated their concern, there was nothing to be done, and after a time, he was unable to sympathize with them as, <laughs> as they were upset about his loss of a house. <laughs> this they didn't readily understand. It was as if some venerable figure in the community, only known to them but near and dear to him, had been murdered, and he failed to show proper sorrow and anger. So... After a whole digression with the Hans about commiseration and the, all the commiserative kind of things we've seen in the story, we're at this point where he just feels no. He feels nothing. Well, why is that? On the one hand, he feels some things too much. He's like, you're supposed to feel bad for Mary and Joseph fleeing Herod, and that's right and good, but you can't feel that same thing for rabbits fleeing weasels because that's bad because those things don't matter. Um, but that's still how it's he in their feels. Nature, right. As he says. Right. Uh, yeah, Mr. Han says, should I get my gun when the cat comes into his yard? And he <laughs> says, no, it's his nature. He just stamped his foot and hissed. Um, and then he, so this is, this is actually really telling, I think. So he, he's chasing this cat away. The cat ran out of the yard. And then he, he's thinking, where are the birds? So yeah, it is, he is the birds. And, and when his neighbors are talking with him about protecting the neighborhood from nuclear holocaust, um, he says there's no defense against that. You can't actually, you don't need someone to warn you if there's nuclear holocaust happening, you're just dead. And then when they finish describing the annihilation of his house and yard that we've spent the whole story reading about, he says to them, there's no defense against that either. So he, he is facing all these realities, but in the end, it's all a doomed. The mosquitoes are going to be gone. The <laughs> animals are going to be gone. And he accepts the finality of that that he can't defend against. Um, because it's something he sees, right? This is what he sees is, is sort of in with and behind it all. He sees through the illusion and knows that in the end, there's kind of no defense. I think that there's this powerlessness that does go through the story just like the other one. He's going to do what's right. He's going to respond to the situations. After he leaves them, he goes and tries to protect the bird's grave from the cat digging it up. And after he does that, he says, uh, the, the, the concluding lines of the story are, it was getting dark in the yard, the night coming sooner there because of the great trees. Now the bats and owls would get to work, he thought, and went into the doomed house. It's pretty depressing. It's pretty dark, yeah. <laughs> I feel like there is a, a sense in which um, uh, Powers is a bit of fatalism. Yes. You sort of see his refusal to compromise. Yes. And in ways that are really good and really faithful. Um, and then at the same time, I'm sort of informed I was reading a lot of his letters. There's an, uh, a collection of his letters that his daughter put together and put out a few years ago. Yeah. Um, as sort of in lieu of an autobiography, which he doesn't have. And there's not like a lot of good biographies on him. But um, the way that he lived his life was sort of difficult. Yes. <laughs> um, 
and caused problems for the people who loved him. And you could see this refusal to compromise, to just like get a job at a university and like make do and write while you're teaching or write while you're doing something else so that everyone can live, mm -hmm. you know? And he, he sort of, his whole life long, refused to fully do that. Like, he would take short-term gigs, he would try to figure something else out. He didn't want to live in the world as the world was presented to him. Um, and I think that part of that is being a man of faith and the world that we're presented with is not the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. um, and we are not meant to just accept it. Yeah. Um, and there's something really good about his characters, um, like in the Forks, Father Eudix, who won't play the game. Like, that's really honorable, and that's really good. Whatever the consequences it brings to him, that's the right thing. But at the same time, <laughs> there's, there's this feeling that now the bats and owls would get to work, and he went into the doomed house, and it's like he, he won't you know, raise his hand to help himself. Yeah. Um, he won't protest the, the demise of his house because this is the way of the world. Um, and I think, it, I think it's a, a little ambiguous yeah. if that's totally right or not. What mm -hmm. do you think? Is that, am I over-reading it because I, like, get frustrated with him from his letters? Oh, I don't know. Um, I, I, I don't know what kind of judgment's being made here. I, I think there is... Um, he's certainly not... He's portrayed, I think, I think because the story is, a, it does seem to be a little autobiographical, a little bit more, although who am I to say that about a narrator? The main character of the story, you're as told by hands. the, yeah, he's in his, you're in his perspective. He is, um, he's certainly not, um, he doesn't even know himself as he's if he's right. Right. I think there the acceptance of the fatalism is like a, uh, like the sweet release of death or something, <laughs> right. which I'm not sure that Powers is necessarily advocating for. No. It's more just like okay, here's the world in which I'm plunged into with all of its complications. Um, I don't. I know certain things that I'll be stubborn about, and I have certain convictions within that, and I have certain judgments, uh, just like we saw with Father Udex. But in the end, um, there is a powerlessness that's accepted. Yeah. And that acceptance of the powerlessness is, is sort of um, the end, the understanding of one's own limitations, and then the understanding of the fact that there, like, there is no defense against the ultimate winning of uh, something even more cruel than cats and and weasels, which is the ever expanding college campus. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this um, is true with Father Udix too. I think it's parallel to the tearing up of the check. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So that's uh, a, a nice window into Powers, the dour man, the dour and yet <laughs> brilliant writer, um, and funny and yeah. very funny. The there's v moments of high humor in both these stories. Absolutely. Um, and I completely identify with the the man trying to tame his yard with great anxiety and just striking out to do various things with some sort of appearance of self-confidence, but not having no idea what one should actually do, yeah. but not being able to free oneself from that. Like it's, it, some people might just be like, oh, I don't know what to do and I don't care. You know? right. Other people might be like, well, I know just what to do and there is no ambiguity here. And then there's, I do care and these things should go well. And I have no idea if I'm doing it well or if I can do it well or if I have any of the answers. And I very much identify <laughs> with that perspective, which is what comes up very strongly in this um, yes. in this story. So, and look how the fish live. So yeah, I'd say to our listeners, J.F. Powers, check him out. Great writer, um, a profoundly devout Catholic, uh, in a very skilled at observing Catholic humans and uh, and all humans, and also. 
gives great social um, commentary for the era, you know, yeah. of, of a sort of Catholic who was um, pretty political and standing up against... Pretty radical, yeah. Pretty radical um, and standing up against some of the things that uh, I think the sway of the church has... I'm going to say that uh, Pope John Paul II and, um, and co. and after him uh, came out pretty defensively against the use of the atom bomb, for instance, but in the 50s when that was happening, um, and that wasn't across the board. And uh, so I'd say there's a certain prophetic quality to Power's work as well. So, Yeah, there's something standing outside the world because you just don't fit in. <laughs> can exactly. give you some great insights. <laughs> you truly can. He's uh, an elbow in a world of confident legs. So. <laughs> confident legs. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great analogy. Oh, I don't know if it is, but I, love it. I said it regardless. <laughs> All right, thanks, everybody. And just to let you know, uh, we're here at St. Bernard School of Theology and Ministry. We've got uh, campuses in Rochester, Buffalo, and Albany. We also have many students in Syracuse and Allentown, Pennsylvania. We are uh, a school that offers all of our courses via Zoom online. And so you could take a master's degree with us or a certificate with us in a variety of topics, including a master's degree in Catholic philosophy, uh, a rare one of its kind. Uh, many people from all over the country find us when they're trying to find a standalone master's degree in Catholic philosophy. And uh, one of my good friends who's sometimes been featured on this podcast, Marco Stango. Hello, Marco. He is a listener, faithful listener, and sends notes. Uh, he is a beautiful professor of philosophy with us, and you can take classes with him and our president, Dr. Stephen Lachlan, uh, to study the history of, um, of philosophy. And not a single one of our philosophers is American. Did you know that, Heather? I did not know uh, that. Stephen's Canadian. Marco's Italian. Get an international philosophical degree with us here at St. Bernard School of Theology and Ministry. And uh, that's all we got for today, and we'll see you uh, soon. We've got coming up, in no particular order, a conversation with Father Isaac Slater of the Abbey of the Genesee. Father Slater is a Trappist, that is a Cistercian of the Strict Observance. And we're going to go down to the Abbey to talk with him about his book on St. Bernard of Clairvaux, the patron of our school. That conversation should be amazing. And we also might get him to talk a little bit about Cormac McCarthy's two new books, although he said, despite having read them twice already and discussed them already in the group, that he is maybe not ready to give any sort of public judgment upon them. Oh, I respect that very much. I do too. He's a very careful man, Father Isaac. So, in any case, I hope you all have a great listening night. Farewell.